Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Our guest today is one of the nation's leading experts on household debt, spending, and the consumer lending industry. He's Dr. Robert Manning, Research Professor and Director of the Center for Consumer Financial Services at the Rochester Institute of Technology. He's the author of the book, Credit Card Nation, published in 2000, and served as editorial advisor to the documentary film, In Debt We Trust, America Before the Bubble Bursts. He's been a fixture on the national media and on Capitol Hill on the subjects of consumer finance and retail banking issues. More recently, he's announced a new legal alternative to bankruptcy and debt settlement programs called the Responsible Debt Relief. Welcome, Bob, to ABI Podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be joining you, Sam. Uh, the president has recently signed the Credit Card Act into law. It's been heralded as providing major benefits to consumers once the law takes effect early next year. Among the many provisions are ones that prohibit uh, retroactive interest rate increases on existing credit card balances, unless you're more than 60 days behind on payments. It also provides that uh, promotional rates must last at least six months. It requires credit card companies to provide 45 days notice before rate hikes, uh, and those increases will apply only to new balances, a change which actually goes into effect later this year, along with a mandated 21-day grace period before payment is due. The bill also provides a prohibition on most over-the-limit fees and an end to double-cycle billing, among its many other provisions. Now, knowing both this industry very well and how consumers use credit, what's your assessment of the impact of the new law, both short-term and perhaps uh, longer-term? Is this new law going to do uh, what it's intended? Well, Sam, the crucial issue here is that the role of consumer credit and credit cards in particular has uh, assumed a much larger uh, contribution to American society in terms of uh, economic growth, in terms of economic uh, decision-making of households, uh, as well as in terms of macroeconomic planning from the government side. Uh, we now see interest rates um, that apply typically to encouraging uh, investment from the business side. Now we're seeing reductions in interest rates that are expected to encourage consumption um, from the household side due to lower interest rates on credit cards. Um, the key issue here is what is it that this legislation attempts um, to accomplish and can it do it? And needless to say, with the profound changes in the credit card industry, um, largely Supreme Court decisions, which enabled banks to move their headquarters to states that no longer had usury law ceilings, uh, such as Citibank moving to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or uh, kind of safe harbor states such as Delaware, uh, as well as the end of state caps on uh, penalty fees, such as the 1996 Smiley v. Citibank decision, which essentially ended the ability of states to impose penalty fee caps on uh, credit card uh, accounts. So these, this landscape has fundamentally changed to the point now that literally anybody with a financial pulse can qualify for a credit card. 
which is extremely uh, different when we compare it to the earlier history of credit cards where uh, the credit card industry itself in the 60s and 70s was in many ways a loss leader, uh, a way of cementing consumer loyalty with the best customers, and the industry was really hoping that those more affluent uh, customers would forget to pay their bill at the end of the month and incur a late fee. They were very risk-averse in terms of lending people uh, and offering consumer loans that they were not sure they could repay. Uh, Fast forward that to where I look at the demarcation for the modern era of the credit card, and that is the 1981-82 period. And that's where we see the end of the distortive effect of huge double-digit interest rates. So when 1978, 79, 80, we see inflation hovering at the 15 to 20% range, then clearly credit card companies were rationing credit when inflation was bumping them right up against their state usury cap ceilings. But by 1983, 84, we're looking at inflation going down to the 3 to 4% range. Now credit cards had a significant margin that were very profitable. And that's where we see both the extensive mass marketing campaign for lower and middle income households, as well as the dramatic consolidation of the industry. So for example, in 1977, the top 50 banks controlled about half of the credit card market. Today, the top three banks control almost 60% of the market. What this means is that for those large nationally chartered banks, only the U.S. Congress can regulate their activities and policies. So this legislation is landmark a legislation in the sense that it's the first major overhaul of credit card um, policies by the U.S. Congress in the modern era. The problem, of course, is what does it intend to accomplish? The law doesn't go into effect until February. It has does not have a limit on how high interest rates can rise. Uh, It certainly begins to focus on disclosure and consumers being more responsible and accountable for understanding the terms of their contracts. Uh, Some of the tricks, such as double billing cycle now, are no longer permissible, and that is somebody who carried a balance and now paid it off. Uh, In some cases, they could still be charged retroactively finance charges until they were at least uh, paid off for 60 consecutive days. Universal default, the industry argues uh, that its major banks no longer um, pursue this policy, mm-hmm. and that is raising interest rates um, based on the performance of another account. So the most important issues are in regard to retroactive pricing. I think there's a good balance here. If somebody is late 60 days on their account, it gives flexibility for the issuer to increase the interest rate, uh, and that is, of course, on the outstanding balance as well, and that interest rate would be reduced if the uh, consumer repays uh, regularly for six consecutive months. Um, The key point here is going to be on um, disclosure. Um, There are some issues in terms of payment by phone where there cannot be uh, additional fees being paid. But overall, I think that this legislation is far more symbolic than having a substantive impact on the American consumer. 
Uh, issues such as mandatory and binding arbitration aren't addressed. Uh, issues in regard to behavioral profiling of how um, credit card companies use the financial information that's collected in terms of making underwriting decisions that their clients aren't aware of. Um, terminating accounts for people that are low-volume users is an issue that's not addressed. And also unilaterally cutting back lines of credit, which are, of course, so important in terms of maintaining consumer confidence in the economy, uh, as well as understanding why and what criteria the banks are using to make these adjustments in lines of, of credit are really not specified in this legislation. So for many Americans who are seeking some relief in the near term, clearly this legislation isn't going to offer it. And in terms of the long term, uh, we have the Federal Reserve statutes that will go in effect that in many cases overlap in July of 2010. So I think in many ways this uh, legislation is more hype than um, symbolic substance and that most uh, consumers are going to be disappointed on what it means in terms of their um, monthly um, payment obligations. What do you think would be the uh, most significant change in the way the industry uh, needs to behave as a, as a result of the perhaps the changes in the rule of the sort of tricks and traps and disclosure that you mentioned? Well, the problem for the industry today is that credit card companies in particular, but um, banks and financial institutions in general are becoming more reliant on uh, punitive fees. Um, also, the role of interchange fees hasn't been addressed in this particular legislation. Right. A lot of small businesses are claiming that it's really an unfair financial burden that they have to pass on to their consumers and that consumers need to understand that they are indeed paying higher prices right. because of the lack of competition and interchange fees. That clearly is an issue that needs to be addressed. But more, more specifically, the issue of the industry's reliance on late and over-limit fees and, you know, capriciously changing the line of credit so that suddenly you find yourself that your charge went uh, above your limit and incurred a $39 fee. Uh, this degree of clarity really needs to be laid out more specifically so that consumers do understand the rules of the game and respond accordingly. Uh, by foreclosing uh, those kinds of um fees that you mentioned, the late fees, over-limit fees, and the like. Obviously, the the industry has to try to make up uh, what would otherwise be a shortfall. Some estimates I've seen as high as $10 billion a year uh, in, in, uh, in how much that has added to their bottom line. How, how is the industry uh, going to try to make up uh, what they're what they're losing in those special fees. Well, this is a really difficult period uh, in transition for the credit card industry that has been part of a larger conglomerate structure of banking. And by that, I mean that the business model of the credit card industry has become fundamentally bankrupt because, for example, let's say 40% of card users that pay off their balance at the end of the month um, don't pay for the right. use of these financial services. Um, High-volume spenders like myself, a lot of business travel, uh, I get cash back and loyalty reward programs, right. which means at 
the industry is paying me to use a very valuable product and service. So that business model was successful as long as the economy flourished because of the cross-marketing of credit cards um, that would establish a relationship with the parent company where the bank would sell a mortgage or an auto loan or insurance product or brokerage fees, etc. Uh, for those 40% of clients, the industry could afford not to make money because the parent financial institution was making billions of dollars on these other financial services. Mm-hmm. But fast forward to the recession, those financial services are not generating those fees. Now the industry becomes literally held accountable as a standalone financial service company, and now it has to make up for the loss of these revenues. I think it's very clear that on the one hand, the marketing of credit cards to those people who are financially responsible and paid off at the end of the month and are rewarded with a free service, that is going to have to be reformed and recast. Clearly, if I am using a valuable service, I expect to pay for it. And yet what we're seeing and hearing more of is that that 40% of the client base is argued that they're going to have to accept higher fees because of the less regular payment history of the other users. Uh, We're going to have to see more membership fees. We'll certainly see a reduction in loyalty reward programs on the lower and middling volume chargers. But on the other hand, we'll see far more competition for high volume, high affluent users of credit cards. So it'll become an increasingly tiered system for those convenience users that uh, are fortunate to get low-cost services from the credit card industry. Mm -hmm. So in other words, for those 40% of uh, what you might call perhaps free riders, people who now get a benefit, get a service, um, uh, and who are convenience credit users who pay their balances in full, uh, they're going to be looking at, you think, uh, perhaps an annual f- return to an annual fee regime or scaled back uh, rewards and benefits programs? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the big problem that the industry needs to recognize is that with the cost of funds so low, that free access to the uh, Federal Guarantee Liquidity Fund and over $160 billion that has been loaned through TARP funds to the um, banking institutions that issue credit cards, the cost of conducting business for the credit card industry has not ever been this low, plus a huge reduction in marketing expenses. So this is an opportunity for the credit card industry to essentially re-engineer its business model and come out stronger. And the fact that they're they're offering 40% of its client base Free services is not a business model that can succeed um, in this transitionary period of this recession. Would the effect of um, you know, the fact that consumers, uh, particularly this this forty percent group that we say now uh, uses uh, cards as a convenience, they are quite used to not paying annual fees. Um, would would the market resist the effort by card issuers to reinstitute a fee regime because you know people won't stand for it i mean is there enough competition within the industry that can suppress some of those 
alternative ways for the industry to try to recoup what they're other not, otherwise not going to be able to get from from those who carry balances and pay bills late. Well, and that's the key point. I mean, right now the industry is trying to reduce the losses on that um, two out of five account holders in terms of terminating accounts that aren't being used mm-hmm. very often, trying to uh, offer fees, membership fees with other kinds of services, or offering um, fees that for the next year there won't be a membership fee, but after that there mm-hmm. will be a phased-in fee. I mean, the industry really doesn't have a choice under those circumstances. Uh, keep in mind, about one-fifth of account holders account for almost two-thirds of the finance fee, uh, finance revenues as well as the uh, penalty fees. And that's another problem with this business model is how do you more equitably distribute the profits from your portfolio if they're concentrated on the one group that is so perilously close to bankruptcy. Also keep in mind the industry is going to have to wean itself from its low underwriting standards where it essentially reduced um, and increased the disconnect between the origination of credit card debt and its packaging as asset-backed securities that were resold to investors around the world. Um, the worst quality debt essentially was is now being held by these credit card issuers because they can't sell it. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have to work that through um, their loss and loan loss reserves over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So the industry right now has gone from a boom to a bust period in a record period of time, and it's scrambling uh, and fortunately is getting some degree of assistance from the federal government, but clearly that's going to be temporary, especially with the repayment of TARP funds. And at the other side of that coin is the fact that there's a lot of reticence about maintaining lower underwriting standards. So they're not going to generate uh, an increased growth in um, finance charge revenue And certainly, as we see more and more people paying down their credit cards or um, shifting from credit cards to debit cards, um, the industry is going to see lower growth in fees as well. Uh, Well, how about then the uh, impact on those with uh, lesser credit, poor, spotty credit? Will credit be less available to that group now uh, that the industry can't uh, recover these handsome fees uh, due to the the new law? Well, that's an important issue because those fees have been crucial in terms of marketing asset-backed securities with credit cards. Uh, But to one extent, for example, the low-income working poor, many of them have pretty much maxed out their lines of credit. I mean, it's not like the industry is going to offer them more credit. It's really an issue of containing the losses through defaults. Clearly, we're going to see more credit rationing for people that are in geographic areas that are more likely to see job losses, mm-hmm. and we're going to see uh, less of a likelihood of offering new lines of credit um, to lower-income groups. I think the key point that I've tried to make was uh, my argument of the double financial bubble, that literally anybody who owned a home in the 2001-2006 period, um, lines of credit were offered at multiples of what they would have been offered a decade earlier. And that was because um, credit card interest rates were charged on essentially secured lines of credit 
due to the ability of homeowners to take out home equity loans to pay off their credit cards. With the end of the housing market, right. we see that an abrupt shift now in the capacity of consumers to repay their debts that is not due to the amount of income they make. That happens so abruptly, again, that the credit quality of the um, asset-backed securities um, based on credit cards plummeted overnight. And again, the industry is now uh, scrambling to reorganize and modify its underwriting standards. So lower income uh, households and those with low credit scores clearly are going to find credit scarce in the immediate uh, future. As part of that uh, credit rationing, could there be a increase, do you think, in different products for this population, the debit cards, which may, uh, or, or even uh, retailers offering discounts for cash, that sort of thing? And if, and if so, is that a good thing for folks that otherwise have difficulty managing their, their use of credit? Well, I think, Sam, it's crucial for anybody to become better money managers of their household finances. And, of course, lower-income um, households have least ability to, to find credit in terms of other uh, financial options. So for them, uh, we're going to see more people certainly reliant on uh, cash-based transactions, um, merchants who are going to be more reluctant about over-limit or fraudulent use of credit cards and start to steer people away from uh, accepting credit cards, not to mention the, the cost of the interchange fees for small businesses as well. But I think you're absolutely correct. We're going to see the cost efficiencies of transactions through uh, the debit and credit card system balanced by concern of those who can't get access to those financial instruments or to those uh, lines of credit, and we're going to see that immediately impact the working poor and low-income households. It's pretty, uh, you can easily imagine, um, maybe uh, several uh, short years down the road after a period of, of a retrenchment in the availability of credit to uh, uh, groups that um, have the most difficulty managing uh, their finances, lower income groups and the like. You can, you can imagine um, new studies that are uh, developed which show um, the industry restricting the flow of credit to those populations. And again, you, you know as well as I what kind of impact those studies and reports have on Congress, uh, which is you know traditionally very sensitive to uh, restricting access to credit to uh, people that need it. And, and so there's a tension there, isn't there, between the industry trying to, you know, sort of uh, fix its business model. Um, at the same time, it, it has to, uh, it's foreclosed from raising money on the backs of uh, 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 low and moderate income uh, folks and their tendency might be to restrict um, the availability of credit and 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 there you could you could easily have a sort of a disparate impact on certain groups and it seems to me Congress would be very sensitive to that and and the industry is going to have to find a way to respond uh, to to those concerns. You know, Sam, in, in my book Credit Card Nation, I had a chapter just on people who could not get access to, to credit cards. And 
one of my key points was that in this period of deregulation and the conglomerate structure of banks, and particularly with financial institutions taking on enormous levels of debt to acquire other uh, related businesses, that the institutional incentive was to migrate to those parts of metropolitan areas with higher income households because they could cross-sell a larger number of financial services. So a community that cannot afford to buy a house and a new car and uh, insurance services as well as investment brokerage services, um, those banks just couldn't afford to conduct business under their normal operations, and that's why we saw the, the credit void that emerged and the dramatic increase in the cost of credit in those neighborhoods. Right. Uh, the credit, the, the issue today, of course, is that the nation as a whole and the federal government is taking on huge levels of debt, and they clearly are not going to be able to be as responsive to this increasing disconnect to access to uh, financial services as it can today. And one of the leading uh, measures that I look at in terms of financial stress is the, the growth of pawn shop lending. Right. And right. we see that across all economic strata right now. Right. So for lower-income households who haven't accumulated much equity, um, they're pretty much foreclosed in terms of getting loans from pawn shops. And really the, the question that's going to be raised is how do you um, create some form of access to community lending in neighborhoods where financial institutions can't make a profit in those neighborhoods. And that's going to be an incredible challenge over the next few years because how do you prioritize that issue with the collapse of the financial system? It's obviously going to be a lower priority, and these are households that really were the front edge of the subprime lending crisis because those households that didn't have alternative sources of credit obviously went into default and bankruptcy much faster than higher-income households that had multiple lines of credit that they could still tap into. So this is probably going to be the most serious challenge in terms of the reorganization of the financial services industry over the next decade. Consumers uh, and households generally uh, across all um, income levels are showing plenty of evidence of debt fatigue. If you look at spending levels, spending rates are down with implications for not only slower economic uh, output and growth, but impacts on retailers and, um, and, and others who depend on robust consumer spending in a consumer-driven economy. What do you think is the outlook uh, uh, in this trend uh, to continue uh, until perhaps consumers have more confidence in their own economic futures? Can we expect us to just sort of muddle along uh, at, at the current rates of uh, consumer spending? You know, what's intriguing, Sam, is that if we compare U.S. economic behavior with other parts of the world um, until very recently with the 2008 recession, um, whenever you see financial distress, the savings rate spikes. And whether it's an increase in cost of medical care, or housing, or education, uh, other countries get more risk-averse, and it's reflected in lower con- levels of consumption and, and higher savings for those emergency funds. 
in the United States, uh, we as a society actually responded conversely. Um, right. Greater financial distress meant lower savings rate and uh, higher levels of indebtedness. And right now, one of my big concerns is that the reduction in lines of credit right now, um, particularly among those um, accounts that have been some of the best um, clients of the credit card industry, is further eroding consumer confidence. And for example, if somebody's line of credit is reduced to their outstanding balance, um, they may not see an incentive for them to pay it down much further because their line of credit continues to get ratcheted down. And so this exacerbates that what used to be a kind of a, a lagged effect in terms of U.S. Uh, economic behavioralism. Uh, unemployment goes up. People have tended to respond that things aren't nearly as bad as it seems. But now we're actually seeing an exaggerated response. Unemployment goes up a bit. Lines of credit are further declining and you see record lows in terms of consumer sentiment in an exaggerated way. The financial fundamentals haven't really deteriorated as much as people's confidences have fallen. And so this is really going to be part of the next challenge, is A, the U.S. economy has to work its way through high levels of debt that will never get repaid. And two, of course, we've got to restore consumer confidence so that people will begin to purchase goods and services so that we can begin the economic recovery. So consumer debt was a driving force of this uh, historic economic expansion, and right now it's the albatross of its recovery. And part of it is simply now how to restore consumer confidence and regaining people's sense of confidence in the economy that they're willing to take on larger financial obligations again. Do you have a sense of when that corner will be turned? Next year, well, the year. Sam, I've, I've been doing a lot of work on the mortgage foreclosure issue and trends in the housing market and how essentially home equity has been used to augment um, the decline in real wages in America. If you look at the last two recessions, 82, 83, and 1991, um, those recoveries were driven by an increase in real income. And in fact, between 1982 and 2001, real income increased about 20%. Uh, 2001 was the first post-war recession where the recovery was actually not driven by an increase in real income and was largely driven by lower underwriting standards and higher levels of consumer debt. What's very clear is the level of confidence that Americans had in terms of the rise in the asset value that they perceived in their homes and their retirement or 401k accounts in the stock market. So we essentially got a triple whammy with uh, the collapse of the stock market, the collapse of housing prices, and the uh, double-digit unemployment rate. And so it looks to me with the next wave of the worst and the largest uh, mortgages that are coming due, the option-only loans, the interest-only, mm-hmm. et cetera, there's almost another trillion dollars in very questionable mortgage debt that's going to become due or resetting. So it looks to me that the housing market has at least two-year recovery ahead, and we can't jumpstart the economy until we've reached the floor uh, and stabilized the housing market. So it looks to me like two and a half to three years before we see ourselves 
out of the worst of this uh, economic storm. With uh, no doubt uh, implications for bankruptcies to continue to go up during that period, too. Obviously, uh, people have to go somewhere. And uh, um, uh, we're looking at, you know, more than 1.4 million new filings this year. And and uh, if, you know, your prognosis is is on, then uh, that, that number is likely to continue to go up. Well, I think you're going to see some extraordinary events in terms of bankruptcy trends where you're actually going to see people filing Chapter 7 bankruptcies to save their homes. Uh, I think we'll probably hit the record levels of 2005 without some um, really dramatic turnaround in, in the economy um, as credit card companies and, and collection companies have to recalibrate what is a realistic amount to collect. And in the past, uh, they could go after 60 80 100%, assuming people could borrow on their homes to repay them. Right. Those collection policies, if they persist, uh, when someone can afford to pay 50 or 60%, will unnecessarily push those people into bankruptcy. And that's why I think we're in a very perilous and delicate balance right now uh, in this transitionary period of the recession of working this debt out and getting people to repay as much as they can rather than seeking a complete and easy way out through a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Well, we're about out of time. I, I do want to uh, have you back, if, if you can, to talk about uh, your current work on the alternative to bankruptcy and, and uh, debt settlement, uh, because you're, you're doing some very interesting uh, work there. So maybe we can have you back. Well, certainly it'll be my pleasure, and hopefully the financial circumstances will be on the upswing at that time. Great. Hopefully. Uh, as I said, we are out of time for today. Uh, Pending uh, having you back for a fuller discussion of, uh, of these issues, I want to thank my guest, uh, Bob Manning, for sharing his keen insights on consumer spending, debt, and ways to cope financially. Thanks, Bob, for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. And we thank our audience for listening. You can access nearly 70 podcasts on the ABI website at abiworld.org. Until next time, this is ABI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day.